in the past when we've had only grid connections as our as our only arrow in the quiver. That was the only way to provide access to electricity. There wasn't really a, a great avenue towards equity. But now that we've added decentralized renewables in the forms of solar home systems that are individual households or in the forms of mini grids where they serve small communities but are disconnected from the main electricity grid, you now have a, a few different arrows in the quiver. And that was Jay Tanasia, Assistant Professor of Electrical and Computer Engineering, as well as an adjunct Assistant Professor of Computer Science at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. And this is the Power for All podcast. The podcast is a forum for leaders working to end energy poverty. And today I'm your host, Christina Skirka, founder and CEO of Power for All. For the unindoctrinated, Power for All is a global campaign of over 300 partners around the world dedicated to ending energy poverty faster. At Power for All, we believe that everyone should have access to the opportunities and quality of life that come from access to reliable, affordable, and sustainable energy. As a 501c3, Power for All depends on the generosity of listeners like you. Please consider supporting our work at powerforall.org slash donate. To get back to the purpose of our conversation today, it's my great pleasure to introduce Jay Tanasia. I had the pleasure of meeting Jay for the first time in 2018 in all places, Italy, at the Rockefeller Center in Bellagio to kick off our work on Utilities 2.0. And Jay was one of 30 leaders assembled to help really imagine the possibilities of the future of energy in developing countries and, and how all of the advances made in the decentralized sector could be combined with the advantages of traditional utilities and working together, accelerate access and stimulate demand. So in this, it's my pleasure to welcome Jay, and I look forward to our conversation today. So Dr. Jay, welcome to the Power for All podcast. Thank you for having me, Christina. Pleasure to be here. Appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. Well, let's just get into our discussion. But, um, you know, first, I think it's always great to hear a little bit about how you came to be who you are in the energy access space. So please tell our listeners how you transformed from being a computer scientist, notice I did not use the word geek, into one of the most well-known researchers in the field of energy demand. Wonderful. So my path to becoming a researcher took some turns. So my graduate study at the University of California, Berkeley, Go Bears, was in the field of electrical engineering and computer science. Uh, I'd always been interested in energy and electricity systems. And uh, primarily in my graduate work, we were studying how the future of a of a variable electricity grid, a lot more solar, a lot more wind uh, that wasn't necessarily controllable, was going to affect the operation of the grid, which is a giant balancing act. In that work, we studied a lot of uh, challenges of that, that we're facing now as we see this variability, and particularly how we can accommodate those changes by changing the, the electricity demand side of the equation. So the, the loads in our houses, buildings, uh, heating, ventilation, air conditioning systems, refrigerators, and things like that. Loads that can uh, actually be used to help the grid by changing how they consume power. So I had this background in, in understanding electricity systems, but a really interesting opportunity came my way after graduating. I actually went and worked at IBM Research in, in their Africa lab in, uh, in Nairobi, Kenya. So I spent a few years 
based in Nairobi, got deeply uh, engaged with, with the challenges of electricity access and electricity for growth, and trying to understand how technology and data could be brought to bear on improving the operations of electricity systems in uh, in low-income regions, as well as improving the planning of those systems as they expand to to meet the needs of uh, a large and growing population and kind of grow out to, to reach 100% of the population in a lot of those settings. After a few years at IBM, I came to the University of Massachusetts at Amherst in the U.S., and have built a team that's focused on the measurement and management of electricity infrastructure, primarily with a focus in Sub-Saharan Africa. And so that's what our our team focuses on today. We use all all kinds of computing tools, satellite data, machine learning techniques, work with Internet of Things devices, mobile devices, to try and understand how well infrastructure systems are operating with a focus on electricity systems and how we can use data to better plan those systems in the future. Well, look, uh, COP26 is right around the corner. And given all your experience uh, looking at uses of uh, variable, or sometimes they might be known as uh, renewable resources on the grid, you're kind of the perfect person to be speaking to. So, you know, thinking about these COPs, Conference of the Parties, um, the big news that has come out of these events, whether it was Rio in 92 or Kyoto in 97, Paris, in 2015, uh, it's usually about agreements. And as a computer scientist, with all of your analysis that you've done on various grids, what is your take on the bread and butter of these UN events, pledges, compacts, agreements? What role do they play in the very real world of applied science and, and looking at how we get more renewables on grid? So these agreements are a fascinating tool. Uh, essentially, you have these national level or global level agreements that that set out targets. Uh, but what's important about these is that they are differential targets, that you don't have the same level or the same reductions in every place. And that takes into account that different places are at different stages in, in development and economic growth and economic vitality. And so what I appreciate about the process here is that the agreements kind of get at, here's a target, you can, and they kind of let each country know that you can figure out your way of getting there. And so countries that need to transition their uh, transportation system more quickly might focus on that, or countries that need to really focus on adopting renewables on their centralized electricity grid may focus on that. But it's important to recognize that a one-size-fits-all approach doesn't fit the state of the world today. And in fact, even at the country level, you might find disparate development between regions. And so allowing countries to aim for targets and kind of build their own locally relevant plan is, is a pretty crucial part of this. So one of the nice aspects and how this ties into to data and planning in that regard is that our increased resolution of data, be it more readings over time or a larger number of readings over space, gives us the ability to really understand how we're doing. Are the changes that we're making in the energy system leading to the kinds of reductions in emissions in this region or that region or so on? It's no longer just we wait for national statistics at the once a year kind of level and and say how we did. We can kind of monitor these things in real time and continuously over smaller amounts of space. And that's a really crucial component as we strive towards meeting Paris Agreement goals and, and also striving towards the sustainable development goals with that 2030 goal. Yeah, so let's let's discuss a bit about the role that decentralized renewable energy uh, could play at Glasgow. And, you know, there's a lot of us who think Paris was the most successful of these agreement meetings, right? Because uh, we had to 
just really acknowledged that there was not going to be a path forward on legally enforceable targets. And instead, look, you know, to what you were saying earlier about voluntary pledges and what each country could do in its own right. And, you know, and I'm curious from, from your perspective, this effort around INDCs um, and for integration, what happens in the countries that you've been working in, say Kenya or Uganda, how is the, the sort of existing power sector looking at decentralized renewables and integrating with them? So one of the main lessons about decentralized renewables is that cost is king, that it really drives decision making more than anything else. You can work until you're blue in the face to try and convince people about the virtues of a technology versus any other technology. But once it's cheaper and provides the same service, it gets adopted in droves. And that's what we've seen with decentralized renewables, uh, especially in countries that are somewhat more hesitant to deploy DREs, that once it becomes a, a cheaper and sufficient option, this really, really grows. And so in Kenya and Uganda specifically, the last set of years, we've really seen a lot of adoption of decentralized renewables, both for the purpose of utility led kind of centralized systems. So this is large solar farms or large wind farms that are on the grid, as well as for consumer systems. So really the, the real decentralized stuff that's small solar home systems at residences or businesses. And some of the challenges that what's, what's occurring with those decentralized systems is wide-scale adoption out of the reach of the centralized authorities. You have so many homes and, and businesses that are where the people are adopting these systems and either using them to stack on their existing grid connection. This is in Kenya, for example, something like a third of Mcopa's customers actually also Mcopa being the largest solar home system provider they also have a grid connection and then sometimes it's a replacement so it's or it's it's a first access to electricity and and so here you have middle and lower middle class folks who just don't have access to grid supply because of challenges getting a connection or where they're positioned relative to where the grid is and so so many people are getting their first reliable access to electricity at home because of the emergence of decentralized renewables. And so from a COP perspective and for how countries adopt this, the question is not really how to enable a little bit more growth. It's how to accommodate that this, this flood is happening, that there's uh, enormous appetite to, to incorporate these systems, enormous appetite to adopt these systems, how best to fit that into your strategy so that you reach the largest number of people in the shortest amount of time and we get closer and closer to that goal of universal electrification. Yeah. Well, and as somebody who's attended several COPs, I think there's going to just be a lot of things that are different at Glasgow. And importantly, it's it's not just the recognition about the need for mitigation, right? I think in many ways, finally, there's a global understanding that that ship has sailed, but rather there's a need to address adaptation and tackling adaptation head on. I really feel like we'll open the door, not just to decentralized renewables, but to a larger discussion about climate change and energy equity. And it's something obviously you and I have been talking about a fair amount. So maybe you could help our listeners by just defining what we've been discussing as energy equity. So energy equity, it stands somewhat apart from energy equality. And the difference there is, is pretty crucial to note. So we'll start with equality. Just everybody has the same amount. And the challenge with this is uh, we'd love a world where equality reigns. Everybody has access to, to the same resources and, and so on. But in reality, equity is a, is a formulation that allows us to get there on the way. And so when I think about equity, in the past when, we, when we've had only grid connections as our as our only arrow in the quiver. That was the only way to provide access to electricity. 
there wasn't really a, a great avenue towards equity. But now that we've added decentralized renewables in the forms of solar home systems that are individual households or in the forms of mini grids where they serve small communities but are disconnected from the main electricity grid, you now have a, a few different arrows in the quiver. You can imagine places that are clustered, that are far away from, from main cities. They might be best served with a mini grid or places that are individual households that aren't necessarily close to the electricity grid, they might might be best served by a solar home system. Now, the key is to make sure you can match up what that system can provide, how much electricity, how often, so on, with the needs of that household. And the needs of the household or the needs of the business, those are that this is where data really becomes important and that we in the past haven't been able to identify on an individual level or, or kind of make predictions about what a household or a business is likely to use. But now if we can pair together the range of different systems that we have available, uh, grids, mini grids, solar home systems, with a better understanding and, and better models to predict what the likely electricity consumption of an individual building or household is likely to be, then we can start to work towards energy equity, where we're meeting people where they are. We're essentially providing enough power and saving the extra money that we would have invested by pushing grid connections out everywhere to reach more people and to do it more quickly. Yeah. So I really like where you're going with this. And and I want to build on it, Jay. I mean, obviously, you know, one of the great shifts in consciousness in 2020 was about a global conversation around equity. And, you know, finally, there is recognition about systemic racism, institutionalized inequality. And, and one could argue the institutions of the global energy system aren't necessarily immune from this. And in fact, there's a whole body of work developing around concepts of energy justice, you know, and that kind of builds into the discussion around climate justice, just transition. And when we're talking about energy equity, I mean, what sort of institutional biases do you think exist in the global power system? I ask that because of what you said earlier, that energy is not a one-size-fits-all proposition. So what sort of institutional biases do you think are sort of in the way of people getting the energy that they want and need? So one of the great introspections that has come out of the last few years and really starting to look at equity and some of the prevailing inequalities that are in that are baked into our systems is that our infrastructure just like our uh, social systems and everything else carries the same biases the same characteristics that are slanted against underprivileged groups and so our infrastructure really reflects our society in a lot of ways, whether that's roadways that pass through low-income areas or whether that's certain households that are not served by centralized sewage systems or centralized electricity systems or whatever else. And so really taking note of what that means, what kind of investment we've put into some communities or some areas and not put into other communities or other areas, uh, that is, is really what gets at this idea of energy inequity and how it can be structural based on previous investments. So whereas we can strive to make forward-looking investments all be cognizant of today's conditions, we also have to recognize that the way the systems are already built today, who has electricity grid access, who is forced to work towards only private solutions versus government-driven solutions, that's where we're starting from. And so we've already begun in a, in a highly inequitable state. Great. So, so Jay, what are some specific relatable examples of energy inequities in the developing world? 
So thinking about this, I have a lot of experience in East Africa and thinking about this with with Kenya in particular. So Kenya has, uh, in the last 10 years, really strived to expand electricity access. And what that means is they've really pushed primarily grid access out towards all parts of the country. But at the same time, what happens in a lot of Kenyan communities is the folks that get access first are the ones who have access to connections or access to resources and can pay for those uh, that service from the electricity utility to get a connection to their home. And so you get within communities a variation of who gets the nice, powerful electricity grid connection are the people that are well-connected or who are higher income. And the another way this happens is actually through the lens of reliability. So just having a connection at home is not enough. You have uh, highly differentiated access because sometimes the power is on 24 hours a day and sometimes it's on it's out for three weeks at a time. And who gets service about when their connection gets fixed in the case of an outage? Who gets whose system is monitored so that the outages remain short if they occur? Those kinds of things are, are incredibly important to think about from an equitability lens. And in general, they're not necessarily managed very well yet. You have uh, rural settings that have three-week or six-week long outages where you have urban settings where the outage is 30 minutes. And it may be the same cause, blowing a fuse because of an overload on that, that system or whatever else. But the result is that the performance of the system varies vastly, and the people that are in the rural setting don't necessarily get the same service and the same access to electricity as the folks in the urban setting. Yeah. And so do you think the lack of energy equity is is actually the result of unequal distribution of energy resources, or do you think it's something else? So maybe I'll turn that around to you, actually. So, you know, the, the question here is uh, if it's about resource allocation or if there's something about measurement. Do you have a, a sense for, you know, from, from what you've seen, other causes? And I can I can talk to some of those. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I think it's very much the power for all perspective that there is an institutional bias. Right. And and there's such a focus on, as you mentioned before, one size fits all approach and just business as usual approach to electrification. But in fact, that's an old world approach to uh, this current century. And so I think, yeah, absolutely. And I I know you'll probably want to talk about measurement, but I, I do think there's biases in the system about where money's invested, how it's invested. A lot of that is borne by the way multilateral development banks are set up for those investments. And and this idea that everybody needs the same amount of energy at all times all at once, it, it's, it's sort of a self-perpetuating problem that we're trying to address the issue of universal access. But what, what, what would you add to that? Yeah, I, th- I think there's certainly a bias towards grids. And with grids, while the, the level of Power is is higher. So in, in Kenya, for example, it's uh, three kilowatts to every single house. So that's that's essentially able to serve something like three microwaves at once at once at every single house. The challenge with that is not every house needs that, and the extra money that you invest by providing that connection to every single house means that you're not investing that money somewhere else. And so if you're able to use some of these decentralized and arguably more affordable solutions in some places, that means you can spread your your investment, your subsidies, essentially, out to to reach more and more 
households and businesses more quickly. But a, a key part of this and, and why this goes unchecked is because of measurement. And you knew I would get back to that. Measurement is my hobby horse. It's the, yes. uh, I think it's something that if you don't measure it, you can't manage it. And there's so, so many things when it comes to infrastructure and, and equitability that we just don't measure today. Uh, well, thanks for that, Jay. And so, you know, obviously there's a discussion that was started fairly recently about this concept of a modern energy minimum or what's known as the MEM. Can you talk us through this concept just super briefly and how it relates to our topic of today, which is energy equality? Absolutely. So the modern energy minimum is a proposal emanating from a, a consortium of uh, donors in the, in the field led by the Rockefeller Foundation to try and set a target that is for what makes a, a level of electricity consumption society-wide uh, that that is a kind of target for, for economic uh, suitable economic activity. So what we mean by that, if we think about the SDG 7 framing, which is about sustainable and modern electricity for all, a lot of focus gets put on the for all aspect. And so there's really been a lot of push for getting everybody access. You hear this, this notion of 900 million people or 800 million people without access. But what you're missing in that formulation is how much electricity people are using. Because well, there's this kind of iron law in energy economics that says that the amount of electricity consumed reflects the amount of economic activity in an area. So if you are able to get more places consuming more energy, consuming more electricity, then surely that means that those places are creating more economic growth and, and uh, resulting in better livelihoods for the people in those places. So the modern energy minimum tries to set a target for what that ought to be. And that target is, is set as 1,000 kilowatt hours per person per year. So 1,000 kilowatt hours, what's that? Well, the key insight with the MEM is that there's a portion of that that's residential, like what you consume at home, and that's 300 kilowatt hours. And then there's a portion of that 700 kilowatt hours, the remaining portion, which is non-residential, essentially the rest of the economy. So if there's an aluminum smelter that's nearby, or there's um, some small businesses that are running a print shop or whatever else, that electricity, that reflects on the economy of the place you live. And so the modern energy minimum tries to take both of these points, rather than just focusing on the household and saying, every household needs to consume X amount of electricity, it says, let's put this all together. So mm -hmm. you think, great concept, it makes a lot of sense, but there's some challenges with modern energy minimum, what it misses. So its goal is to try and bring in this non-residential electricity consumption. And it tries to do that in a very simple way with a simple target that, that we can measure and try to meet society-wide. But what it misses are where the energy transition is actually happening. We're trying to move towards electrification of the entire system. So that's cooking, cooling, heating, transportation, trying to move all of those from other energy sources to electricity. And so if we're not creating additional consumption of energy in these transitions, we're not necessarily achieving the growth in economies that we're after. And the modern energy minimum doesn't really take this nuance into account. That's actually pretty important. And specifically for the kinds of rural settings where we think about electricity access is a big issue, cooking is actually by far the largest source of energy consumption. But it's not really considered separately if we convert from three-stone you know, fire cooking with firewood and things like that and charcoal to electric cookers. That conversion isn't treated any differently than actual economic growth, even though you're still just cooking in, in, the, one, in the one case. With actual economic growth, you're creating more economic activity, more income, and, and better livelihoods. And so it's important to, uh, with the modern energy minimum, to know that it's while it's trying to reach this target, you could actually reach the modern energy minimum by switching everybody over to electric cooking or electric transport, 
but not actually achieve any kind of economic growth, which is the goal of what the modern energy minimum is trying to push, is to give these targets to to policymakers. And does the scenario mean that you know potentially millions of households could still be without electricity in 2040 versus the you know sustainable development goal targets of 2030? So this is one of the challenges with these averages, society-wide averages, to say that there's enough electricity being consumed across everybody that meets this goal. But what the improvements in data and analysis of, of systems has really let us look at is not just averages, but distributions. Are there people on the low end who aren't consuming electricity at all? Are there people on the top end that are consuming enough electricity to meet a thousand households' needs? And understanding that distribution, are we meeting everybody's needs, is a pretty crucial part of that. Averages miss out on that. Great. So, well, let's talk for a minute about what can be done at COP26 to address energy inequity. I'd love to hear from you, just your thoughts, and then I've got one last question for you, and then I will let you get back to your very important work around energy demand. Great. Well, so, you know, COP is a, is a coming together, right? This is everybody brings their issues to the table. We try and find a solution or a set of solutions that meets countries where they're at and, and allows all of us to deal with this, this thorny problem of, of climate change where we're all inputting, but some are inputting more than others. So, one of the challenges is what you centralize, what you standardize versus what you say can be handled by each country individually. And in particular, as always, I'm going to hit back on the measurement topic, a question about how we measure these, these changes and, and measure these, these transitions to different types of energy sources. So COP can be a, a great opportunity to really push at how we compare electricity reporting so that when one country reports that they've cut emissions by 70% related to 1990 levels or 50% related to 2005 levels or so on, that we're working from the same baseline, that we, we kind of understand what that is. We're using the same kinds of systems to measure that. So there's some really exciting technology coming up on the measurement front, particularly with satellite-driven measurements of emissions, of, of economic activity, of all kinds of other characteristics of societies. COP, I think, is a, is a great opportunity to really look at how do we drive towards making sure that all of our measurements are aligned and that we, when we're setting goals and targets, we're actually able to make sure we're meeting those goals and targets. Yeah. And I mean, look, I mean, the whole conversation going into this is around net zero commitment <laughs> because, you know, I've been in the energy industry for so long, net zero used to refer to, you know, individual households. And now we're talking about entire economies. So just with all the focus now on these net zero commitments, do you think there's anything that, that net zero commitments can do to help with energy equity or, or to accelerate universal electrification? They, they seem to be headed in a different direction. And this challenge that they're heading in different directions is something we, we really need to nip in the bud. So, you know, net zero at the economy level is all well and good, but you also have to consider what happens outside country borders. And so the U.S. has been a master of this for, for many years, exporting our problems to other, other places, whether that's electronic waste or, or recycling or other things like that. And when it comes to products that are manufactured, whatever else, if we solve those net zero problems within our borders in, in any country, and then but don't follow those, those same principles outside our borders, we run into issues. Now, I was really heartened to see uh, a pledge from the Chinese government to say that they will no longer invest in new coal plants. And then I was especially excited to see that they will no longer invest in new coal plants outside of China. Uh, those kinds of things as, as net zero commitments or towards net zero commitments are, are crucially important. We need to think through what that means, though. If we place equity as a goal 
and don't consider how that interacts with net zero, then we might be exacerbating inequality or, or inequity by pushing on net zero. You know, where the kind of classic argument in development here is why should developing regions, developing countries face the same modern constraints with saying everything must be, you know, 100% renewable that a lot of the today's industrialized countries did not face when they were developing. Now, that's important to understand. There's There are particular aspects of economies that can be replaced with fully renewable energy and electricity, but there are other aspects that may not be. And understanding what is a reasonable amount of carbonized development and, and carbonized energy and electricity that can be withstood while still meeting our, our larger global goals. That's a, it's a pretty difficult tightrope to walk, but an important one to consider as, as we try and balance the goals of development as well as, uh, as decarbonization. Well, Jay, thank you. As ever, it has been a pleasure speaking with you. I'm so lucky to call you a colleague and a friend. And, and to our listeners, thank you for listening. A reminder that you can find a wealth of sector news, analysis, and data on our website, powerforall.org, as well as our platform for energy access knowledge, or PEAK. You can also sign up to receive our fantastic monthly newsletter. And if you'd like to support our work, again, you can make a donation at powerforall.org slash donate. We'll speak to you soon on the next episode of the Power for All podcast.